All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on 2 Peter. We are going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10b, the second half of verse 10, down through the end of the chapter in verse 22. But before we jump into the, the content, just a real quick reminder that if you set up a monthly recurring donation this month in the month of April 2022, you will get free access to the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. So go to listenerscommentary.com, and right at the top, uh, there is a little banner with a button off to the right-hand side that says Donate Now, uh, and that'll take you to a place where you can set up a monthly donation. Just put in whatever amount you want, literally whatever amount you want. Click the little box that says Make This a Monthly Donation, and... Uh, within a day or so, I will send you a personal thank you note with a link to where you can sign up for the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. All right. So check that out. That's a way of saying thank you to all of you who have supported this. That's a way of saying uh, just celebrating what God has done through the Listener's Commentary. It's two years old. And uh, in the last 12 months, it's received about 85,000 downloads. In the last 12 months, it's getting Right now, at least around ten to 12,000 downloads a month, and so it's just continuing to grow and increase, and we just want to celebrate that and thank you who support this work by giving you free access to the study of. All right, so check that out. Now, let's jump into the content for this particular uh, study here, Second Peter chapter 2, the middle of verse 10 down to the end of the chapter in verse 22. And the context of this is this. Peter is still calling out the false teachers. That's what all of 2 Peter chapter 2 is about. In the first half that we looked at in our last session, Peter warned that false teachers are a reality and a problem and that their judgment was guaranteed. Peter also encouraged us and the believers in his original audience, that God knows how to deal with those false teachers and God knows how to rescue the faithful. Well, here in this second half of his really uh, calling out of the false teachers, now he shifts to rebuking the false teachers themselves, and he does so in really just a series of graphic, descriptive terms for them. So the first little chunk of this is 2, 10b through 12. And the first thing Peter calls them out for is that they don't know their place. They, their arrogance about spiritual things leads them to blaspheme spiritual powers. They claim to know so much and be so smart, but Peter says they're actually like irrational, foolish animals. And recall that the last thing Peter has said about these false teachers in the first half of verse 10 is that they despise authority. Well, now he's going to kind of like riff on that theme a little bit, and he's going to describe how arrogant and these people are that they don't actually know their place. And so here's what he says. Picking up in the middle of verse 10, he says, Reckless, self-centered, they speak abusively of angelic majesties without trembling, whereas angels who are greater in might and power power, do not bring a demeaning judgment against them before the Lord. And so in some sort of way, and Peter doesn't tell us how, he, they are speaking abusively against angelic majesties, and they do so without any fear, without trembling, without any like respect for the fact that they are speaking against powerful spiritual beings. 
uh, the word speak abusively literally is just blaspheme. So they're blaspheming. They're running down and talking down angelic majesties. And that phrase translated angelic majesties literally is just glories, glories. But it likely refers to high-ranking spiritual beings. What we see in the Bible is that there is some measure of hierarchy in the spiritual realm, um, that there are angels, and then there are archangels, right? Like angels, the word just means messengers, so they're spiritual beings who, who are messengers. And then there are archangels, and that word arch means ruler. And we also see this in phrases like rulers, powers, authorities, right? Like these, these refer to some measure of role division and hierarchy among the spiritual beings. And so when it talks about glories here, um, the angelic majesties or the glories, well, we're, we seem to be talking about high-ranking spiritual beings. And so what Peter is saying is that the false teachers in his day are so arrogant and so despise authority that they blaspheme high-ranking spiritual beings. And then Peter goes on in verse 11 to say that angels won't even do that. Like, like lower-level spiritual beings won't even... You know, they won't even blaspheme or speak against or give a rebuke to higher ranking spiritual beings because they at least have the decency to know their place. Um, that's what he's getting at. In fact, in Jude's version of this, the parallel passage in the book of Jude, Jude mentions that the archangel Michael won't even rebuke the devil himself, but says, the Lord rebuke you showing that Michael, as an archangel, didn't even presume to have the authority to rebuke the devil. The point is that these false teachers are so arrogant that they do what angels won't. They blaspheme high-ranking spiritual powers. Now, again, we don't know in which way they're doing this, and that's not really the point Peter wants to make. The point he really wants to make is that that's how arrogant these guys are. Peter then goes on to drive home the point by saying that though these teachers claim to know so much and be so smart and be so great, they're actually like irrational brute beasts who don't know anything. That's what he says in verse 12 and the first little tiny bit of verse 13. He says this, but these, these false teachers, like unreasoning animals, irrational animals, right? You can't have, you know, you can't talk philosophy. You can't study scripture with unreasoning animals. They don't, they're brute beasts. They're irrational, right? Like these, just like irrational brute beasts, unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, using abusive speech where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So again, it's a flowery way of describing the situation. In fact, all through this section we're going to look at in this recording, Peter's going to use a lot of flowery language, graphic descriptions, hyperbole, a very traditional Jewish or Middle Eastern way of speaking in these kinds of situations. And that's what we have here. But the point is clear. Peter is ridiculing the false teachers who claim superior spiritual understanding and he's ridiculing them because he says they actually know nothing. They're, they're like irrational animals. They're driven merely by instinct. Those kinds of animals are going to be destroyed. These kinds of false teachers are going to be destroyed along with them when the judgment comes. In fact, he says they're going to suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. In other words, they're going to get what they deserve. 
the idea of wrong actually has more the idea of harm. They've done harm to others. Well, they're going to get harm in return. In fact, the word wrong there actually comes from the D-I-K root in Greek, which is the whole righteousness and justice word family. So they're going to get justice. They're going to get their just desserts. They're going to get what they deserve. That's the idea. Because of their arrogance, because of their deceitfulness, because how they have used their skill to talk and their arrogance to manipulate other people, they've done harm. And they're going to get the kind of harm that they've done back to them. They're going to suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Peter then continues describing really the badness of these false teachers, but this time he focuses specifically on their sin, especially sexual sin and greed. That seems to be really at the heart of their sensuality. Let's get as much as we can to spend it on ourselves, and and part of that is indulging their sexual desires. And so sexual sin and greed seems to be two of their problems. And Peter points this stuff out, and then he basically says, and because of that, because of that way of life, they're like stains on the church. That's his point here. And what he goes on to say, notice he says, they, these false teachers, count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Like they don't even try to hide their sinful behavior. They, they do it in broad daylight. That's the idea of this, that they, they count it a pleasure to revel, to live however they want, do whatever they want, satisfy their desires however they want, right in broad daylight. They, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. Now, that last phrase is important, as they feast with you. Those feasts probably, as best as we can tell, refer to the early church practice of eating a meal together as part of their weekly worship gatherings. These were called the love feasts, celebrating kind of the love and generous spirit among the Christians. And so Christians would gather together. They would share their food with one another as part of their weekly worship gatherings and as part of taking communion together. And so in that context of a meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together. That's the feast that we're talking about here. So here are these false teachers. They're they're actually insiders. They're part of the church. They're participating in the weekly uh, gathering, the communion and the feasts. And yet they're living this way, reveling in their sinfulness in broad daylight. And so Peter says that um, they are stains and blemishes really on the church because of their immorality, because of their reveling, because of their deceptions. They're they're a dark spot, a stain on the church. Then he goes on to describe their behavior with three descriptive phrases. The first is this, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Like they could never get enough. They never stop doing it. Their eyes are full of adultery. That's all they want. Give me more, more, more uh, sexual satisfaction. And they never cease from sin. That's the first description. The second one is they entice unstable souls, enticing unstable souls. In other words, not only do they live this way themselves, they invite others to do the same thing. They invite others to follow suit. Uh, They teach this twisted version of the gospel that gives, in their mind, that gives them freedom to practice sexual sin uh, as much as they want. And they tell others, this is the way. This is the way. Join us. In fact, they target Uh, unstable souls. In other words, people weaker in the faith who don't know better and who are easy targets. 
So they have eyes full of adultery. They entice unstable souls. And then the third description is they have hearts trained in greed. Notice that. It's a pretty picturesque description. Like they're skilled at greed. They're really good at it. They've practiced it so long that they've gotten good at it. They're trained in greed. So their hearts, their inner being, the control center of their, their will is trained and good at greed. Then Peter goes on to pronounce a curse on them. He says, accursed children. That's the very next phrase. Hearts trained in greed, accursed children. This is pronouncing a curse on them. Like they're, they're under God's wrath. And then Peter compares them to an Old Testament prophet who for the sake of money, that is for the sake of greed, led Israel into idolatry and immorality. And basically Peter is saying, that's essentially what these false teachers are doing. Who's that Old Testament prophet? Well, it's Balaam. And you can read the Balaam story in Numbers 22 and 24, as well as Numbers 31. You kind of got to get the Numbers 31 account to make sense out of really what happens in 22 through 24. If you just read 22 through 24, it's not clear that Balaam actually did anything problematic. But when you read Numbers 31, you realize, oh, there's more to the story. So Numbers 22 through 24 plus Numbers 31, that's the Balaam story. And here's how Peter just kind of summarizes it for this context here in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says this, verse 15, Accursed children, abandoning the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the reward of unrighteousness. That's that money that he was promised. He was out of greed, like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll curse Israel for the sake of money. So, who loved the reward of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own offense. For a mute donkey, speaking with a human voice, restrained the insanity of the prophet. Now, you're going to have to go back and read the whole story in Numbers 22 and following if you're not familiar with it. But uh, Balaam is basically called upon by a king that's opposed to Israel. This is during the days of the Exodus wanderings. And uh, it's actually beginning to approach the border of the land of promise and getting ready to enter. Well, there is a king um, that, of a people group that uh, opposes Israel. So he hires this prophet, Balaam, and pays him some money to curse Israel. Um, and uh, on his way to curse them, his donkey won't proceed and actually speaks with a voice because the donkey can see the, the angel of the Lord right in front of him and the prophet can't because he's so blinded by his greed. That's kind of the point of the story. Um, so uh, Peter here recalls this story um, and how Balaam then goes on, after, even after the donkey tries to stop him and goes on to try to curse Israel, but God won't let him curse Israel. He keeps blessing them instead. The king that hired him gets frustrated with him. Finally, uh, what Balaam did was he gave some advice and said, here's what you can do. You should have the Midianite women seduce the Israelite men, and that'll actually work, and that'll lead them into disaster. 
And you can read that little bit of the story in Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. Here's what it says. It says, These were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So Peter says that the false teachers of his day are like Balaam under the Old Testament time period. Driven by greed, they're a menace to God's people. They do harm to God's true people. That's what these false teachers are like. Uh, they're like Balaam, and they're more driven by what they can get for themselves than really being faithful to the Lord. Then Peter ends his condemnation of these false teachers with a series of picturesque descriptions about uh, how they make grand promises but they actually give nothing. They offer a lot. Oh, look, we'll do this for you. and You'll get this. And this is what it'll be like. So they make all these promises, but they actually give nothing. Look at verse 17. It says this. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. In other words, they offer refreshment. They offer water. They give nothing. The land of Israel was dependent on the early and late rains for crops, right? So, um, you know, mist driven by a storm. They're like, they look like rain clouds. When they get there, they have no rain to offer. Or a spring that promises water, but they're dry, bone dry and empty. And Peter says that because of that, black darkness is reserved for them. Just look up above to verse 4. Four, and you'll see what Peter is getting at here with the black darkness. Basically, the same fate that those angels who sin um, are undergoing, well, that's what's reserved for these false teachers. So it refers to the place of punishment for those spiritual beings who have been reserved for judgment. And Peter says, guess what? These false teachers are going to get the same treatment. He goes on in verse 18 and says, For while speaking out arrogant words of no value, they entice by fleshly desires, by indecent behavior, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. The main idea of that sentence, it's a little, uh, there's just a lot in there, but the main idea is that they entice those who are just escaping air. In other words, new and young believers who are just leaving the life of sin, who are leaving the life of flesh behind them, and thus are more susceptible to fleshly desires and to false teaching. They don't understand the truth as much, and they're not nearly as sanctified, and so they're, more, they're still more inclined to want to satisfy those fleshly desires. And that's the main idea here, verse 18. Um, with fine-sounding words of no value, Peter says, uh, with fleshly desires that look so fun and attractive, they seduce these new converts away from the truth of Jesus and back to sensual living. What do they promise? Well, look at verse 19. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what anyone is overcome, by this he is enslaved. In other words, they cast off moral restraint in the name of freedom, but they really are slaves to the d decay and rottenness of their way of life. Like whatever a person is overcome by, that's what he's enslaved to. Peter learned this from Jesus, right? Like anyone who is overcome by sin is a slave of sin. So don't say you're free when you really are bound to behaviors that you can't stop and you can't control. Whatever a person is overcome by, to that he's enslaved. And so these false teachers promise freedom a free and fun and exciting life, a life that feels good and satisfying, but they actually offer nothing except corruption and slavery. Verse 20 says, For if, 
after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, after they have come to faith in Jesus, they've come to hear the truth about Jesus and in some sense believed in him and thus escaped the defilements of the world. They've escaped the pollutions of the world. So if after that's what happened to these false teachers, they again are entangled in them and are overcome by them, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So for both the false teachers and for those who are enticed by them and listen to them, here's the result. They've known the truth. Um, they now have denied the truth and they've walked away from the truth and gone back into a fleshly lifestyle. And what Peter says is, Evil has gained a stronger footing in their lives because of it, and now they're using it to lead others astray. And so their situation is worse now than it was before. Um, the way one commentator puts it, he says, The gospel they initially confessed, they had now repudiated. The Lord and Savior they had embraced, they have now rejected. The world that they had escaped has now recaptured them afresh. And Peter concluded from all of this that their last state was worse than their first state. Why? Because they knew the truth and then they walked away from it. And so Peter goes on and says in verse 21, for it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Notice, it would have been better. It would have been better if they had known it. But it's like once you have a taste of this, then you corrupt it and pervert it and walk away from it. It's almost harder to actually come back. It's almost harder to get things straightened out. Like the situation now for them is worse off than it was when they were unbelievers initially. And then Peter ends his description and warning and rebuke with a proverb, a, a wise saying. Actually, he states it as one proverb. It's actually sort of two combined into one. Here's what it is. Verse 22. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Both of these sayings make the same point. Uh, unclean things return to uncleanness. Both a dog and a pig, a sow, in uh, Jewish world of the first century, they were considered unclean. In fact, Proverbs 26, 11 uses the same word picture of dogs returning, returning to their own vomit. And so, Dogs and pigs in the biblical worldview were considered unclean. And so these Proverbs really take that and say, unclean things like dogs and pigs? Well, guess what? They return to their uncleanness. And so to confess faith in Jesus and then reject him, even reject him by how you live your life, is to return to vomit or to jump back in the mud. That's the point of the proverb, and that's the point Peter is making. And so whether it's the false teachers, whether it's those who have been enticed by them, they've, they've returned to lick up the vomit. They've returned to go wallow in the mud. Now, let's just end this recording with just a couple of reflections. The first is the reality of false teaching. False teachers didn't only exist in Peter's day. They didn't only exist in the Old Testament day. False teachers have been an ever-present threat since, since Peter's day. Um, there are different types, but we should pay attention to what Peter says about the false teachers, to his descriptions, because Peter's descriptions can help us recognize the kinds of false teachers he's talking about. So notice what Peter has said. They claim the name of Jesus. 
They claim to be believers. They participate in church. They say spiritual sounding things. But at the same time, they live immoral lives. Uh, they base the way they live on the freedom they have in Jesus, um, and they are greedy and self-serving. Those descriptions that Peter has offered here help us understand what false teachers look like, and that helps us be able to recognize them if we ever should meet them or come across them. And so we, as God's people, we must know the truth we must help new and young believers know the truth so that we can help keep them from foolish, false ideas like those being um, passed on by the false teachers of Peter's day. The second reflection I want to offer on this section here is just where this section ended with that proverb about the vomit and the mud. Like There is a real danger of returning to vomit. Uh, there is a real danger presented here of people returning to their former way of life. And Peter says that's actually worse than when they never knew Jesus. Peter says that those particularly vulnerable to this are unstable people. That is people who are weak in the faith and shaky and lacking a solid biblical foundation. People who are new to the faith, or maybe they've been in the faith for a long time. They just have never been taught. They've never been grounded. So their faith is shallow and shaky and weak. And what that means for us as God's people today, both leaders in the church, but all of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time and who aren't unstable, we need to work hard to guard and to ground people in the truth about Jesus so that they aren't unstable for years and years and years and, and thus susceptible to all sorts of false teaching. We live in a day and age where ideas and information just flood our news feeds and uh, come at us in cute, spiritual-sounding little memes and all sorts of wise advice, and we can easily just grab those things and form our life around those, and they may be half true or maybe even false, but if, if people don't know the scriptures, it's really easy to fall victim to that, and then that could lead people right back into uh, a, a fleshly, sinful way of life. There's a real danger of that. We need to guard against it for ourselves, and we need to help unstable believers become stable so that they're less vulnerable to that problem.